Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good news. Actual good news. News that is a source of optimism. Not something we're accustomed to talking about, I'll be honest with you, in the often dystopian hellscape that we have become all too accustomed to. Here's my prop. Chile. Now, look, it's nearly half a century after Augusto Pinochet overthrew the democratically elected socialist president, uh, Salvador Allende, in a Western-backed coup d'etat, which killed thousands of people. Henry Kissinger, the US president's uh, Nixon secretary of state, had declared, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist because of the irresponsibility of its own people. Now, in that CIA-backed bloodbath, thousands were killed and hundreds of thousands were forced to leave the country. Amongst those refugees were Chilean refugees taken in by my own family in the 1970s in South Yorkshire. One of those refugees, a woman, took her own life. This was a huge trauma for the Chilean people, which has endured its consequences for half a century. Now, this weekend, the Chilean people have decisively voted for the left-wing student leader, Gabriel, um, Ga- Gabriel, sorry, here we go, I'm just checking it, Gabriel Boric, and I'm, I know his name, it's just I lost my script entirely, Gabriel Boric in the presidential election, trouncing the far-right Pinochet supporter, Jose Antonio Cast. Now, let's have a look at C, Boric, taking the stage as it's announced he's president-elect. Now, Gabriel Boric won nearly 56% of the vote, which was exceeding by quite a significant margin what the opinion polls had suggested, compared to just over 44%. Uh, for his opponent, the Pinochet supporter, Jose Antonio Cast. So that was more de- significantly more decisive than most of the polling suggested. Now, there has been jubilant scenes across Chile. Now, Gabriel Boric is the first millennial leftist to take power on Earth. The guy's two years younger than me, which is hugely embarrassing. And he is the youngest head of state in Chilean history. Now, he's declared if Chile was the cradle of neoliberalism, it will also be its grave. This is a very important point, which we will talk about, because that coup that I mentioned was indeed what turned Chile in 1973 into the testing ground, a giant experimental laboratory for what became known as neoliberalism, the onslaught against state provision, privatization, deregulation, allowing market forces to run riot, uh, the rich allowed unfettered to accumulate as much wealth at the expense of society as possible. That experiment, if you like, was then applied to other countries, not just in Latin America, but in Britain, 
and across much of the world. Now, after a reversal of what was so-called the Latin America so-called pink tides in the 21st century at the beginning, we saw the rise of various progressive governments which sought to redistribute wealth and power in profoundly unequal societies in which oligarchies are entrenched and in which, of course, there is huge amounts of deprivation in which so-called neoliberalism had caused a massive surge in poverty across the continent. So this pink tide went into reverse, particularly in the second half of the 2010s, not least most notoriously with the triumph of Bolsonaro in Brazil, the far-right extremist, of course. Now, this is just the latest example of a new pink tide victory, with the left having triumphed in Mexico in 2018, Argentina in 2019, Bolivia in 2020, reversing a right-wing coup, and this year Honduras and Peru, while the left is in a strong position in Colombia's upcoming presidential election, and of course, in Brazil later next year, which we will talk about, we are able, as I've said, to talk about great news, positive news, and we're going to talk about the lessons of that. But it is worth reflecting on the horror of what Chile went through. Here are some images for those listening on the podcast of the violent coup which took place in 1973, in which thousands were killed, including the president, Salvador Allende. Huge numbers of people tortured, disappeared in a violent overthrow of a democratically elected government backed and are backed and supported by Western states, not least the United States of America. Now, let's bring in David Adler from the Progressive International, which Boric is actually a member of. We'll talk about what the Progressive International is. And live from uh, Santiago, I believe, is Hassan Akram, uh, who will talk about Boric's victory there. Firstly, Hassan, can you just tell us? Welcome to both of you, by the way. Big honor to have you both. Hassan, just tell us, what is the atmosphere like right now in the capital, Santiago? Basically, it's jubilant. Uh, the scenes that you uh, showed in the introduction were very much uh, symbolic of what's been going on in general over the last day. The stress, uh, the social tension uh, that's been the product of a very nasty electoral campaign, which is straight out of the Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, uh, Jair Bolsonaro playbook. So the installation of fake news using coordinated Twitter accounts, uh, direct personal attacks on different uh, leaders, above all uh, feminists and members of uh, LGBT groups, has made the, the a terrible sense of impending doom. Uh, there was a certain fatalism in the Boric camp, certainly for uh, the last few days when they thought they were going to lose. And because Jose Antonio Cast is the first a right-wing politician to openly defend Pinochet, uh, there was also this fear of a regression to the uh, to the authoritarian days. Um, and now that's been lifted. The the celebrations have been universal really there's the sense that Gina has been saved i should say as well the reason i stumbled on the script earlier is i wrote a note pronounced boric boric didn't pronounce it right anyway but now we've now corrected ourselves so it's absolutely fine um let's just talk i want to talk about the broader context in terms of what's been happening in chile because chile obviously pinochet ruled until 1990 a constitution was imposed written even after the so-called transition to democracy on the terms um, of Augusto Pinochet. And you had then in, in 
years more recently, huge student protests, which of course Boric was a leader of. Let's just have a look at some of the footage from those student protests in which students sing a song by Victor Yara, who was a Chilean folk singer who was amongst those murdered by Augusto Pinochet. So, David, you just tell us, just in terms of what happened after 1990, you've got this constitution which was written on the terms of Augusto Pinochet, um, and then, I suppose, that settlement began to fragment under the weight of these student protests. So just give us the context of what those student protests were all about and what they were rebelling against. So the student protests in 2011, I think, kicked off what many would understand to be a real decade of uprisings, protests, the Estadillo, as it came to be known in the past couple of years, referring to what your listeners, your viewers will remember, were these incredible mass uprisings that began in October 2019. That, you could say, was the culmination of three decades of sustained, you know, kind of weak promises on reversing, if not exiting, from the neoliberal path set by that Pinochetista constitution that resulted in high levels of inequality, privatized transportation, privatized education, etc. So 2019, you'll remember those images of young girls from school dancing uh, and running riot through uh, the, the metro system uh, and people marching through the city demanding that the regressive uh, reactionary policies and repressive practices of Sebastián Piñera, the outgoing president, were no longer going to stand. And so it's critical to situate these elections and Boric's uh, candidacy in the context of the past two years in particular, as well as the, the, the student protests out of which Boric emerged as a political figure. But critically to understand that what was at stake was not just the difference between Gabriel Boric and José Antonio Cast as candidates and their respective political programs. And we'll get into a bit about what each of them stood for and what I can tell us about the future of uh, political transformation in the country. But really critically, this was, has to be understood as a process that emerged out of that Estadillo, which culminated in a plebiscite on the Constitution, as you mentioned, Owen. You know, are we going to write a new Constitution, a new chapter for our history? Of course, José Antonio Cas campaigned hard against that new Constitutional Assembly process, whereas Boric was one of the leading figures arguing for rewriting the country's Constitution. And so the stakes of this election were very much, are you on the side of that uprising, of that movement, uh, to you know, rise up against the neoliberal uh, kind of strangulation of the Chilean economy and society to rewrite a new constitution, or like Jose Antonio Cast, were you looking back towards the past to say, no, we have to relish kind of the legacy of Augusto Pinochet, and we have to resist these attempts at transformation uh, and social change. And so that's really why I think that you see such jubilance, as Hassan mentioned, why it's such a widespread and profoundly felt victory. It's not because necessarily people uh, were so enthused by a certain manifesto, it's because it's a culmination of such a long process of protest and repression, of uprising and respect for the uh, demand for renewal that came out of those protests. So let's just talk about Boric himself. Now, we've got some pictures of Boric. So as we can see, he's the first hipster president on earth, as well as the first millennial uh, leftist. Here we go. For those listening on the podcast, just look up Gabriel Boric on, um, on Google. <laughs> Uh, he's um, he's there's an image here of him holding uh, a picture of Taylor Swift as as I would say Jesus Christ actually <laughs> um, that's that's just what the image is 
Hassan, tell us a bit about Gabriel Boric. What's his background? How did he come to prominence? And how would you describe his politics before, you know, the pre- we'll talk about the presidential run? Gabriel Boric uh, was president of the University of Chile's Student Federation. So that would be the equivalent of um, the uh, NUS uh, in Britain. Now, the students' movements in Chile play an extraordinary role which really has no parallel, certainly anywhere in in, uh, in Europe, um, because there is a, a huge uh, importance placed on the role of student leaders for mainstream politics. So when Salvador Allende won those historic elections in 1970, the first democratically elected Marxist president in the world, he gave his victory speech from the balcony of the Fitch, that's the, um, the student federation's building, uh, because the students were so important, it's difficult to imagine a British prime minister giving their victory speech from any, uh, NUS offices. Um, so Gabriel Boric is a creation or is formed politically by the student movements. Uh, he comes to prominence uh, in 2011, 2012. But it's important to bear in mind that he represents a generation that started protesting as secondary school students in 2006. There was something called the... Uh, Revolution Pinguina, the revolution of the penguins, because um, school uniforms in Chile are black and white, so they make them look like penguins. Um, so he, th- this uh, generation started uh, doing secondary school protests in 2006, then moved on to uh, massive university protests in 2011. And in 2019, you really see them going into the labor market and then the whole country erupting in, into protests. Uh, there's, there's a phrase that's often used La generación sin miedo, the generation without fear, which makes reference to the fact that the generation before them was afraid. And the reason they were afraid was because they had been brutally traumatized by the violent dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that the, the important thing about these students is that they are born in democracy. That's in fact something you see in, in Chilean literature, in novels, they talk a lot about this. The, the generation that's born in democracy is fundamentally different from uh, the generations who, were, who, who grew up during the dictatorship and were uh, actively uh, brutalized by the disappearances and the torture. So with, what you see with, with Boric as a student leader is in fact uh, a, a, a criticism not so much of the Pinochet dictatorship, and I understand why from, a, from an international perspective, we focus so much on, on what happened in the 1970s, but really the critique that Gabriel Boric brings to Chilean politics is a critique of the 30 years of democratic transition, which was, if you like, a sort of a Chilean version of new labor. Because what happened was that the dictatorship was defeated um, by this democratic movement, these huge social protests but then moved very quickly uh, into um, electoral business as usual politics, which had in fact been heavily influenced by by public relations firms uh, and by a new kind of uh, non-territorial, non-radical politics. And that's what Gabriel Boric and and his generation grew up uh, with and what they grew up criticizing. So the biggest thing that that, that he did as as a student leader was argue for free universal university education because uh, which existed in Chile in the 1970s uh, and was privatized under the dictatorship. And Chile, in fact, if you control for um, earnings, has, I think, the third highest uh, university, uh, third highest costs for university education in the world. It's more expensive uh, if you control for earnings than the United States. 
So they, these student leaders were protesting because they wanted free education. And from there, it became a wider critique into wanting uh, basically a welfare state instead of uh, um, subsidies and folk uh, um, work style uh, in work benefits. What would you, David, do you want to just add about that in terms of how you see kind of Boric's politics and, and, and the significance of, you know, how he came to the prominent, how he ended up, of course, being selected as the candidate? Because actually he wasn't actually the front runner as the left candidate originally, was he? Well, yes, I think uh, building on Hassan's point about the evolution of the critique of Chilean economy and the concertación, as it's called, that kind of agglomeration of parties that emerged after the transition to democracy that governed in a very disappointing and mostly kind of uh, managerial way, and much like New Labour. I mean, many of those policies are recognizable from an Anglo perspective, for sure. But Gabriel Borch also managed to cohere a, a coalition of quite diverse forces that ranged from uh, the, the feminist movements, came behind him to even the Communist Party, uh, and it's uh, especially his younger elements, uh, who, um, who, of course, we can talk about their role in that great 30-year transition process. But um, Gabriel Borch was, was running uh, in kind of a party within a party within a coalition. So Gabriel Borch comes out of a party called Convergencia Social, which is, as, a, as you mentioned, no one a member of our Progressive International, which also emerged out of these most, most recent protests. Convergencia Social is part of the Frente Amplio, a kind of collection of three parties, Comunes, Convergencia Social, and Revolu uh, Democracion, uh, sorry, Revolución Democrática, Democratic Revolution. And then that umbrella of the Frente Amplio was part of the Apruebo de Unidad, this a coalition that brought together a diverse coalition of left forces, primarily around their support for and hopes about the constitutional convention process that was kicked off earlier in this summer. And so that is why I think, again, we see such a widespread sense of ownership of this victory and excitement for the future. It's because one of the primary tasks of Gabriel Boric is not only implementing X policy or Y policy, it's not only ending the privatization of pensions, it's not only ending the privatization of, private, of natural resources in Chile and taking on the ecological crisis there. It's also about sheltering and protecting the constitutional convention process to flourish. One of the things that I think is critical to discuss in this, in this process is the relationship between the executive, between the presidency, and the Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention being the group that has been empowered, and it's an incredibly exciting, diverse group that's been empowered in those elections this earlier this summer to rewrite the Constitution. The relationship between those two. So, you know, we like, there's some distance between the Constitutional Convention process, of course, and the presidency, but the presidency has a lot of power over the shape, direction, and status of that Constitutional Convention process. So we saw this already under Sebastián Piñera, where they attempted to basically starve the Constitutional Convention of basic resources. We're talking Wi-Fi, chairs, lights, electricity, so that they would make their lives really difficult. No, not having staffers, not having the ability to kind of do their work with the seriousness it deserves. And the reason why that's important is because nothing is guaranteed about the Constitutional Convention's outcome. The people of Chile will vote on the final document produced by the Constitutional Convention to decide whether to stick with the actually existing Constitution or whether they're going to move ahead, writing a new chapter for the country's history and accepting that new document. So the, pr the primary role, I think, in, many of the, in the eyes of many, many, many Chileans, even parts of Gabriel Boric's coalition, is to say that the chief mandate that comes to this new presidency under Gabriel Boric is to protect, to support, to give legitimacy and international visibility to the constitutional convention process so that it can do its work in peace and not be attacked constantly and hounded in the press of course, it still will be, but at least not from the bully pulpit of the presidency. And so that it has the kind of legitimacy to go forward and write new, new rights to housing, to health, 
to nature itself in directly into this constitution, because that is really going to be the source of the transformational process in Chile. More than an individual policy, it's going to be rewriting the whole architecture of neoliberalism within the context of its constitution. I'm curious for Hassan's views of the kind of prospects for that convention process now that we do have a Boric presidency, mm -hmm. because he and I have spoken in the past about the stakes of that. But that's how I really understand the transformational capacity and potential of a Boric presidency in Chile for the next few years. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear Hassan on the Constitution Convention and how that's played out over the last period. But also the point you made about that period, this transition after Pinochet being quite akin to New Labour. And of course, for example, some might be aware of the former socialist president. I mean, that was her party, Michelle Bachelet, um, who it must be said came from a family which suffered themselves until Augusto Pinochet. Her dad died after being tortured by Pinochet's goons. But what it's input so we understand, I suppose, the significance of what's to come. What did the likes of Bachelet's administration, what did they preside over in terms of economically and socially? And then Hassan, yes, it'd be great to hear your your thoughts on the Constitutional Convention. You're muted though. I think you've muted yourself. Yeah. Yes. Um Right. I think to really understand uh, the limitations of the the democratic transition, so that's the 30 years after the end of the dictatorship, um, you really have to understand what the dictatorship did in terms of implanting this, uh, this neoliberal economic model uh, into Chile. Um, it's actually useful to think about it in, in, in terms of comparison with Britain. Um, when Margaret Thatcher comes in, you know, she's she's famous for this strongly ideological government. Uh, in fact, there's, there's this famous anecdote, isn't there, where, where she's debating with a Tory wet who said, we need to take a middle path. And she pulls out of her handbag um, the Constitution of Liberty by Friedrich Hayek and bangs it down on the table and said, this is what we're going to do. So you see there with Margaret Thatcher, a strongly ideological government linked with these neoliberal thinkers with Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and people like that. I mentioned that because there's a very interesting letter by Friedrich Hayek to Margaret Thatcher, where he complains. He says, you've been talking about how you're following my ideas. But in reality, the pace of change in Britain has been tortured, has been ludicrously slow. Look at what's happening under Pinochet in Chile. There you see my ideas really being put into practice. Of course, it's very different um, putting into practice a, a, an an economic model of privatization and um, liberalization when there is no opposition because you're shooting them, torturing them and imprisoning them as opposed to in a, in a democratic system. Really what happened uh, in Chile was, the, was a laboratory experiment where the economic model that Margaret Thatcher wanted to apply to Britain but couldn't do things like privatizing the NHS, for example, everything was privatized uh, under... Um, under Pinochet. So you got the introduction of um, privatization of universities, privatization of the health system, privatization of the pension system. So all of this was um, was imposed during the dictatorship period. And the, con and the constitution comes after the imposition of all of those reforms, basically as a padlock. So what the constitution does is it makes it very difficult to change those laws. Uh, basically because they don't require 51% uh, to change them. They now require super majorities, so four-sevenths or three-fifths or even two-thirds for changing, um, for, for changing the, 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 the economic 
laws, that, the economic reforms that were established under the dictatorship. So you've got a double problem where the country has gone through extreme privatization. And on top of that, you have a political system which has been blocked, stopped from making those changes. So what the Constitutional Convention represents is opening that up, breaking the constitutional structure that makes it impossible to make changes. Uh, in the period of the democratic transition under Michel Bachelet, basically what happened was that they were unable to open up or break the constitutional uh, blockage because they lacked uh, um, basically majority support uh, for those kind of changes expressed in congressional uh, majorities. They, they may have had majorities in the country, but you had a non-proportional electoral system basically also designed to favour the right. So those were the two things they did. One, changes required a greater than 50%, 51% uh, uh, majority. And on top of that, uh, you, you also found it very difficult to get those majorities because of a disproportional electoral system. So they, they were to an extent trapped. There's a huge debate uh, in the academic literature about the extent to which the concertación um, was unable to make those uh, those deep changes and the extent to which it was unwilling to do so. So to what extent was it hamstrung by the fact that it didn't have majorities and to what extent was it actually simply um, cooperating uh, with the, and, and had become comfortable with the dictatorship's apparatus. Uh, as always, I think there's a, there's a mixture of the two of those things. It, it was, you know, it was a, um, they, they governed for, for 20 years. So, you know, there, there was plenty of different things going on. Um, in that time, I think what, one way of looking at it is a, a sort of Stockholm syndrome, where people fall in love with their kidnappers. At the beginning, I think concertacion politicians did want to make major changes, but were faced with Pinochet, who stopped being dictator and moved to becoming head of the armed forces and was there in the Ministry of Defense. And in the early years, the concertacion had to negotiate everything with him. But when Pinochet left the political scene, um, after he was um, imprisoned in Britain, um, in order to get out of that, he had to plead senility. So that was the end of him in, in mainstream politics. Also, that he'd been found out post September the 11th, 2001, when the US started investigating uh, illegal bank accounts in the States, that he'd also been very corrupt. So when Pinochet disappeared from the political scene, the Concertación had an opportunity to make deeper changes, and they did not. So the, really, the critique of the Concertación is in its second half that they, they earlier they hamstrung from making changes. But when they can make them, they don't. And that's where the critique of the student generation that Gabriel Boric is part of becomes fundamental. They said there they could have gone for deeper changes and they didn't. And that and what the Constitutional Convention now offers is really finally ending the, le uh, the legacy of the dictatorship, opening up the political system, which will, once you've, you, you create a more democratic political system, will allow then the gradual introduction of universal social rights and the construction or reconstruction of a welfare state. And I think it's critical to emphasize, I mean, one of the reasons I emphasize the Constitutional Convention, as Hassan mentioned, is it's not like the political logic, the political arithmetic distribution is more favorable to us today. So it's, you know, Gabriel Boric does not come into the presidency with a whopping majority uh, uh, from the legislature. Right. So, and, you know, at the, at the outset of the, of the show, and you mentioned that the left is increasingly powerful, that after a recession of the pink tide wave over in the conservative decade of the 2010s, now we see a resurgence of popular movements, student movements, uh, left movements coming back to power across the continent. But they're coming to power under very, very different circumstances, different structural circumstances. The early 2000s, 
saw a global boom in commodity prices, of course, but also just a general kind of exuberance on the markets. Now we're in a profound recession, global recession, and a severe pandemic with struggles to vaccinate populations in the global south, right? Different structural conditions, different very institutional conditions. So you've got a much more active, rapidly so in many cases, judiciary that's going to go after uh, politicians, as we saw for example, in Lula's incarceration, as we saw in the coup in Bolivia, as we're going to see time and again, judges being much more active in handicapping, if not just paralyzing, uh, progressive projects in the presidencies. But now also there's the political differences that emerge between so-called Pink Tide 1 and now proposals for a kind of Pink Tide 2.0, which is that we're being elected with wafer-thin majorities, with minorities in Congress, they're gonna make it very difficult to legislate. And that is why there's so much hope that is invested in the Constitutional Convention, because it's a way, okay, sure, there's still a high hurdle there, two-thirds, I believe, Hassan, two-thirds are required of the, of the convention to approve many of its major um, policy changes, which that is a rather controversial, yeah. rather controversial um, number. But the point is, is that um, we need to be sober about thinking through the transformational capacities that attend to a presidency with a minority legislature. Obviously, I'm speaking here as a citizen of the United States, where we're now seeing where just one person can, uh, who's ostensibly on your side, can disrupt your whole legislative package. And what we want to avoid, I think, is a sense in which we're overestimating the transformational capacity of a presidency that doesn't have an arithmetic logic in his favor, because we don't want to disillusion our movements by putting investing too much hope in the power of the executive to basically introduce transformational change. So the convention becomes this much more exciting arena for a dialogue, a conversation, and of course, future a kind of uh, policy change to emerge in Chile, because uh, we we're not going to have that kind of major, you know, really transformational, ambitious social and political agenda introduced from the halls of Congress. Before we talk, just in terms of what comes next, well, I want to talk about what happened on election day as well, which I think also um, is a sign of things to come. H Jose Antonio casts. So there's an image of him there for people who are watching this. Just talk through, just talk us through, who is this guy? I mean, he is literally, just for people who don't know much about him, when we say the son of a Nazi, we're not just throwing language around. He's the son of a German Nazi who fled Germany, the process of denazification after the collapse of the Nazi genocidal regime. Whoo! Yeah, this is this is the real deal, isn't it? So t tell us, Hassan, about this guy. Just just what were we dealing with here? What were the stakes? Okay, um, we've got to be a little bit careful here. Um, now, it's true that uh, Jose Antonio Cast's father was a Nazi. He tried to hide this, by the way. He said, well, my father was a German soldier. There were so many other German soldiers, uh, and they weren't all ideologically committed to, to extermination. It's just that they were part of that system and it was conscription, it was normal, but we now have evidence which was dug up by Chilean journalists in Germany that in fact Jose Antonio Cast's father, uh, Miguel Cast, spe specifically chose to join the Nazi party in the 1940s uh, as a way of advancing his career. So he had some ideological commitment to that regime. Um, when they uh, immigrated to Chile, their political position was hard right. It's not fascist exactly, because these are not people who believe in a one-party state. These are not people who believe in closing Congress, but they are the hard right uh, of Chilean politics. So um, there's a, a belief that Pinochet saved the country from uh, communism, 
and that Pinochet was always building Chile towards uh, representative democracy. So that was the big project of the the 1980 constitution, the dictatorship's constitution, which instead of creating a permanent dictatorship, creates this limited democracy. And Kast is basically uh, committed to this model, which political scientists call low quality or low intensity democracy, um, specifically designed to protect uh, um, basically the business elites. Chile is one of the most unequal countries in the world, but to protect those uh, business elites from the power of majorities through creating these uh, democracies requirements for change through supermajorities. So Castis is basically the, 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 the defender of that system. He has closeness to much more extreme positions, which are, let's put it this way, it's the same thing that was said about uh, Donald Trump. It's not that he's a fascist, that, that Jose Antonio Cast is a fascist, but all of the fascists in Chile are, uh, support Jose Antonio Cast best put that way. In fact, uh, in terms of the the people uh, who were involved with torture and murder during the dictatorship, there's one particularly famous one, uh, Miguel Krasnov, who was actually a Cossack from the Don, um, whose family were involved with um, the killing of Jews in the in, in Russia during the, the Russian Civil War. And he's very famous, for the, they, they take a, a Jewish political prisoner um, during the, the Pinochet regime, and he Miguel Krasnov goes in, uh, finds this woman, uh, woman, Diana Aron, tied up, starts torturing her, comes out covered in blood and said, that swear word, uh, awful woman is uh, not only a communist, she's also a Jew. So you see there the, the, the viciousness of this, uh, of this regime, the links with, um, with anti-Semitism and with the, with the European fascist and Nazi right. And what me and what Jose Antonio Castro says is I've met uh, Miguel Krasnov and I can't believe he did any of those terrible things. He's in prison now for something, the, the total years are something like 200 for all the things he did. Uh, so basically you have people who are not directly Nazis, but are soft on Nazism. Okay. Not <laughs> yeah, not great. Not yeah. great, I think is not, not great. But I think if you give a rundown of the program Owen on which he was running, you get a clear sense of that this is kind of fascism adjacent. So here are some examples of policies on which Jose Antonio Castro was running. One, pardoning the torturers, the butchers of the Pinochet regime and those crimes. Two, introducing a Chilean ICE, that US agency for detaining and deporting migrants in violent and borderline criminal fashion, removing the Chile from you know, any kind of UN declaration on human rights. Um, he also wanted to introduce new presidential powers to intercept any communication and to arrest any Chilean in their home or outside their home. So whether he would have succeeded in such an ambitious legislative package, of course, remains to be seen. Uh, the right, he would have won also with a wafer-thin majority that would have been much more difficult to legislate, for sure. But I think the point is that this really did look and feel like the ghost of Pinochet haunting the country, as much as Hassan is right to point out those distinctions between those programs. Um, but I don't think that we need to tiptoe too hard around a presidential program that is so geared towards the centralization of uh, security powers in the presidency and the deployment of those against marginalized communities, suppressing, uh, you know, violently suppressing Mapuche communities who are fighting for plurinationalism in their communities, uh, you know, saying horrible things about women. This is a man who referred to when 
when rainbow lights lit up the presidential palace, he referred to it as the gay dictatorship. Um, uh, you know, so, uh, this is the guy ran the gamut on this stuff. And, you know, he's sitting there wearing a, a, a literally wearing a MAGA hat on a on a live stream with a proper uh, fascist. I thought I think you'd agree. Um, the guy who said that giving women the right to vote was a mistake because they still vote for the left, even when they're raped by migrants. Uh, he said that we need to form an international anti-globalist alliance along with, you know, Viktor Orban, Donald Trump and, and Jair Bolsonaro. So I think there is really, uh, as I, I think he, he tiptoed towards in the campaign around some of these more extremist um, past declarations and affiliations. But I think it's critical that we identify just how dangerous that threat is, because as we will discuss, I think in the coming few minutes, it's not going away. So no, I mean that's uh, what I'm gonna, I was going to bring up. I mean, you mentioned the gay dictatorship. We're working on that, but you did mention the ghost of Pinochet. So there he is, live footage from hell. Not not looking happy. Um, just quick that what I want to talk about in terms of what happens next. So on the day of the election itself, we've got a, a tweet here. In Chile, government reduced buses in the cities by fifty percent in an attempt at voter suppression. Um, what on earth happened here with the buses? And what does it and what does it potentially foreshadow? Because we remember if we look back, of course to the experience of Allende, and I will also talk about what the markets have done. We will talk about that separately. If we look back to Allende, obviously there was an attempt to, the infamously was the trucker strike, which was backed by various foreign forces, causing chaos and all the rest of it. What happened with the buses, and does it foreshadow something ominous under the new presidency? I think we should be a little bit careful there about what happened with the buses. Um, okay. It's not true that the buses were reduced by 50%. What happens is that uh, on an ordinary working day, uh, you will get you know 90% of the total available number of buses uh, on the roads for obvious reasons. On a Sunday, that will fall to 50% uh, because of the fact that there is lower demand. The government knew because this was an election day that there was going to be much greater than normal demand because it was an election day and they should have made moves towards increasing the number of buses available but what you saw was the normal sunday number of buses available rather than uh, a, a working day number which is what they promised now the problem is that chile's bus system is a public private partnership and the ministry of transport lacks incentives basically to to force the uh, lacks tools rather to force the bus companies to pay their uh, bus drivers a higher wage to make them willing to work on a Sunday. Now, all of this uh, is is a mixture of incompetence and uh, doubt and deliberate negligence. So, rather than deliberately suppressing the buses, they failed to um, take to take a, uh, proper precautions and and, and to uh, make sure that the the numbers of buses will be increased. Um, th this has happened in every uh, previous election as well, that there have been problems with uh, transport to uh, to voting polling booths. This is a, a general thing in Chile. The poor live much further away from polling booths than the rich, and there is very poor public uh, services in general, uh, public transport in general. Uh, this time it was worse, not so much because of the government, but because there was this huge uh, social mobilization. Normally in, in a second round, you'll see... Uh, uh, voter participation staying the same or at most it's increased by a couple of points this time it increased by eight points so a huge increase in voter turnout and the government hadn't taken steps to take uh, to deal with this 
Um, so I think I, I think that's really what happens. It's more more a combination of incompetence and negligence than it is of deliberate conspiracy. That actually speaks to a general thing that needs to be understood about the the um, the caste camp group. They're basically an alliance of of two uh, subgroups. One is the traditional Chilean right. Now the Chilean right includes people who are soft pinochetistas, if you like, people who are not going to support coups today, but who will say, well, you know, they had to do it at the time because there's this terrible Soviet Union type threat. Um, the Chilean extreme right, if you like, the ones who are pro Pinochet, um, but still respect the current democratic system, are fused with with the center-right in Chile. So that's the, the standard establishment conservative. And Jose Antonio Cast was an establishment conservative. He was on the right of the Chilean right. Uh, so he was a pretty extreme figure to begin with. But then he left the big Pinochetista party because he wanted to found his own party. And that group has basically made links with the real extremist right. So you, instead of, so you're talking there about the incels, the Steve Bannonites, um, the people who, who talk about gender ideology and the gay dictatorship and all, and all of this stuff. So you have those two groups sort of side by side. And Gast tried to be a little bit more moderate and leave those people behind. He sort of gave a, a rather grudging apology to Daniela Vega, who's this Oscar winning uh, trans actress. And uh, he earlier wrote an article saying Daniel, Daniela Vega is a man really offensive, anti, a transphobic article. Uh, and he sort of tried to pull back from that, which created annoyance from his incel group. So he's he's got this sort of double thing going on there. And there is a risk with uh, going forward that this incel group, which now has uh, members of parliament, is going to stick around and keep poisoning the, uh, the politics of, uh, of Chile going forward. But at the same time, there is an awareness, even from Jose Antonio Gast himself, that if he wants to be a leader of the Chilean right with any possibility of, uh, of, of putting together a, a, some kind of a majority or even a big minority, he has to jettison those groups. So it's a bit of a more um, uh, mixed situation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In terms of, let's talk about going forward, Boric's platform. So, David, is it basically a standard fair social democratic platform with climate emergency stuff thrown in is that is that am i being overly i mean is it is that an accurate summation and in terms of you spoke about obviously the coalition i can't pronounce it properly apropos dignidad that's use that was a joke wasn't it that wasn't not bad at all not bad at all owen mm, come on david you're being overly 
you're being overly kind. Um, in terms of that coalition, it is a broad coalition of various different left forces, and they they are they do have internal divisions. They have different positions, not least, well, I, I know, in international questions. For example, they have different stances on issues like Cuban, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Um, but they also have different stances on domestic issues in terms of how rad- radical uh, the policies they're prepared to support. And as you've noted, hit, there's very, in terms of the legislative situation, there are huge obstacles. So what does all that mean, given how divided is the coalition? Could those divisions become a problem? How radical is his program? And how much are the legislative blocks a problem as well? So I mentioned the arithmetic challenges that face abort governments, uh, speaking from the legislative side, because they are not coming into power with a huge number, uh, you know, a whopping majority that's going to enable them to legislate. And they're coming into power. I think, Hassan, we can answer your question that it's not just likely, but it's certain that that emboldened right is going to be an obstructive, very vocal force in Chilean politics for many years to come, which is, I think, a familiar process that we see happening even in Europe, where parties like the AFD or the Brothers of Italy become kind of more mainstream parties, fixtures of party politics, through which center-left governments uh, either have to negotiate, isolate, or figure out some strategy to, um, to deal with. I think that, critically, though, the issue with Chile is a familiar one for countries in the global south which is a a structural constraint. So since 2019, we have seen massive outflows of capital from the Chilean economy as rich Chileans send their money abroad and basically accelerate the rapid dollarization of the Chilean economy. The reason being that they are afraid of the pretty moderate demands that emerged from the Estadillo in 2019 around social protections and ending the privatization of pensions, education, et cetera, uh, where rich Chileans just feel like, you know, um, we're not going to stick around. Many people were joking about, you know, the, uh, the fact that uh, waiting lists for Miami private schools are going to double today now that Gabriel Boric has been elected president. Um, but certainly this was a feature of Cast's kind of more honest uh, approach to the campaign trail, saying things like, rich Chileans, if they feel like you're going to raise our taxes, at the click of a button, we can send our money abroad. And already we see a kind of tumbling of the Chilean peso. We don't know how credible that threat is of a kind of Kalekian reaction or investment strike. Uh, but capital outflows do present a real structural challenge for any social democratic leader. And this is something that we saw, for example, in Lula's election in 2002. You saw the classic Lula meter, which was an instrument created by Goldman Sachs to track the exchange rate of the Brazilian real to the likelihood of Lula's election. This is what I call the kind of sovereignty shift, where we see agenda-setting power shift from domestic constituencies and actual voters and citizens to foreign investors, in this case, also the 1% of Chilean society who own the vast majority of resources and wealth. And so it's going to be a really interesting point for any social democratic government, let alone a left government, to see how do you bargain with those elites? How do you talk about these structural constraints that attend to any global South economy operating in a dollarized global context? Um, uh, Do you make those compromises? Do you take a more aggressive approach towards, for example, the nationalization of uh, natural resources, of banks, things like this? Um, uh, or do you enter a, a bargaining phase? And do you have the political capital? Do you have the movement support to take on those interests in that substantive way? Or uh, is the ghost of the 1973 coup kind of haunting you in a way that you understand that taking on Yankee interests for that reason is going to provoke a counter reaction that uh, Chile hasn't seen in a long time? So I think that that's just to describe many of the structural conditions, constraints, and challenges that, um, that go up against a Borch government, but maybe Hassan can speak more to the 
kind of programmatic planks of that agenda and where they sit vis-a-vis -vis, uh, proposals for a Green New Deal, for example, in the UK and the US. Yeah, so, so Hassan, I'm interested in the program, programmatic question in terms of what the Boris platform actually is. And just to note again, David mentions the kind of market reaction, which was basically threatened in, in the run-up. It was made clear that obviously a far-right victory, the markets would sigh a huge uh, um, sigh of relief. Uh, so we can see here, Chilean markets hammered after left its Boric election win. Um, and we can also look at the peso, the uh, Chilean currency. There's a plummet going on. They are horrified that the far-right candidate didn't win. So Hassan, just, I'm interested in the program, but I'm also interested in kind of the, the, the response from private business interests. Okay. Um, I worked as a, um, an advisor of the... Um, the Frente Amplio. So I was working on the uh, the initial program that when the Frente Amplio was founded in 2017, um, they did a participative uh, pro, uh, programmatic process where they invited uh, people to join the Frente Amplio to to give their ideas about what kind of program they want for the for a future government. So in fact, the the program was called uh, the Program for the Many, um, and that. Policy program basically talked about transitioning from uh, um, and basically a new labor style social welfare system, which provides a safety net towards a Scandinavian style universal social benefit system. So free education, free healthcare, um, uh, without this this being means tested, being funded by increases in taxes taxes for the very rich, and also for with a greater role uh, for uh, the government in terms of innovation policy, um, lots of things taken for, from, you know, well, there's a huge tradition of, of this kind of uh, state-led innovation policy in, in Chile. It comes from the, the ECLAC, which is the Economic Commission for Latin America of the United Nations, but, you know, the same ideas you see with Mariana Masucato in England or Ajahn Chang. So those ideas were very strongly present in 2017, and these are, this is effectively the same program that has been updated for the 2021 election. So that's basically the, the, the thinking behind it. So it's a changing the welfare system to being a universal one and paying for that through higher taxes and um, also a, an increased role of the state in the productive sector. Um, in terms of the possibility of applying this, um, it's certainly true that there has been a, a macroeconomic um, um, <laughs> panic, but this happens all the time. So every time a left-wing government is, uh, comes to power, the, the, the local currency plunges. Um, this is we shouldn't get overly worried about this you know the the, the, the because you know the the, the the international currency markets are incredibly volatile they go up and they go down um they respond to international crises like covid ju just as much as a, as a change in government uh at the same time the the stock market you know the stock market has also crashed well, does that really matter? You saw in 2008, 2009, you know, the world is going through a massive crisis, there's huge unemployment and the stock market is shooting up. Uh, there has been a general decoupling between financial indicators and the real productive economy, and most importantly, the employment statistics. So we shouldn't get too worried about this capital flight which happens initially, because what that means is rich people taking the money that it's easiest to take out of the country away. So obviously, if you have a, a, a current account, you can just transfer money abroad. But it's a little bit more difficult to move a copper mine than it is to move uh, money you have in a bank account. 
So it, it's, a, it's a bit overblown, this idea that people like uh, the rich uh, investors are going to pull all of the money out of Chile. That's not really the constraint because the, there's a lot of money to be made in Chile because they have one third of the world's copper supply. They have lithium. They have lots of natural resources and, and a, um, a, a, um, a fairly highly skilled workforce. So this, that's not the major concern. The, the real concern, I think, has to do with the very delicate um, global macroeconomic situation. Um, I just finished some interviews with Yanis Varoufakis and, and Hajun Chang specifically about the, the, this issue. What can Chile do in this situation? Chile is one of the most China-dependent uh, economies in the world. So they really depend on China for buying their copper. Uh, with the Evergrande crisis, there's a serious concern that copper prices will fall. Uh, and that's going to really limit the possibility for, for carrying out this transformation towards a European-style welfare state. Uh, that said, the other really big limit is that there isn't a congressional majority. Uh, actually, due to a, a couple of, of very well-organized sabotage campaigns by the corporate media, they were able to bring down effectively two senator potential senatorial candidates for the left. And now that the Senate doesn't have a majority, you're in a very, very difficult situation where it's not going to be possible to pass any legislation. And that more than the, that combined with the difficult macroeconomic situation means that this government is highly unlikely to carry out immediate social transformation. So the program is, but the program was always very ambitious. It was always about, a, a you know, these are four year electoral terms. And they said, really, we can only do this in eight years. And it was ambitious to say eight years. Really, this is a long term project of transformation of the entire Chilean economy. Um, so really what's going to happen now is going back to the constitutional assembly that's fundamental it's going to uh, write the new constitution and they're going to have a plebiscite to approve that uh, next year and that is going to permit as i said the democratization of the chilean state and then with more democratic institutions they'll be able to construct uh, more solid majorities for the gradual implementation of the uh, of these programs but I think given the very delicate economic situation, particularly with China, it's going to take a lot of time. But I think the Chilean public is quite aware of that because they have put so much faith in the long term project of the new constitution. Just lastly, do stay with us if you're watching or listening, because we're going to speak to a striker in a very important strike, which is taking place at the moment in Sheffield, where I was born. Very important people support it. It'll only take a few minutes. After this, do, do stay with us because it's so important we show our support and solidarity. Um, in terms of, uh, just lastly, the wider significance, um, but also uh, the response of the US, Daniel Pipes, who's a hard right winger in the United States, says, my sympathies go to the 45% of Chileans who voted against the left-wing extremist Gabriel Boric, just elected as Chile's next president. Chile has gone down this road before in 1970 to 1973, and it ended very badly. Basically saying, Nice democracy you've got there, Chile. Shame if anything happened to it. Um, equally, if we look across what's actually happening in Latin America, I mentioned already this year Honduras and Peru where the left won. Uh, but also this next year, we have elections in Colombia where a left candidate for the first time has actually a chance of winning. If we look in Brazil, the tragedy of Brazil with Bolsonaro winning, of course, but the election next year, at the moment, Lula, who was prevented from standing last time, um, is on 63% in the second round. Bolsonaro is on 37%. That looks like, a, as things stand, would be a big win if he, that's allowed to happen. What do you both think in terms of what are the US going to do just finally? And what does this mean for Latin America more generally, the so-called pink tide? I don't think that... 
we should expect this new pink tide to go on without uh, a more serious consideration of the U.S. strategy. Um, now, I think that that U.S. strategy has some partisan differences. So we look at Trump's approach to Venezuela, which was just such aggravation uh, and a coup attempt, really pathetic and failed coup attempt, but nonetheless really willing to endorse uh, the coup-mongering tendencies of Latin America's new right, new neo-fascist right in places like Bolivia, uh, turning a blind eye to the obvious uh, electoral fraud uh, in Honduras, which of course led to a stolen election uh, prior to this one, where we saw Castro come to power after a decade of kind of repression, uh, coups, and military governance. But I think it's a very fragile pact that uh, this new Biden administration is making vis-a-vis -vis, uh, new progressive forces in Latin America. Um, certainly, they're no less draconian with respect to countries that they perceive to be properly threatening their hegemony. Those countries being like Venezuela or Cuba, where the embargo it remains in place, uh, that, that is you know, a six-decade-long embargo with no in obvious intention to thaw diplomatic relations with Cuba and revisit those really draconian policies. So I think the question is on both sides, you know, not just how the U.S. react, but how do these new governments um, relate to the U.S. and its interests in a hemisphere? And that is not a question that we can answer a priori. That's going to come out of deep negotiations and thinking about whether there's an appetite to challenge the Yankee and his interests in Latin America, or whether um, people are really scared of the Venezuelan example, not just in the kind of Chilezuela anxieties about the Maduroification of the economy or whatever, but really about the example that the U.S. has set with its sanctions regime in Venezuela. Of course, as I'm speaking, the U.K. government is moving ahead with the process to transfer 1.3 billion pounds worth of Venezuelan gold to Juan Guaido because they've decided that he's the true representative of the Venezuelan people. But I think that that speaks to the sense in which the policy that the Anglo countries, the U.S. and the U.K. take together vis-a-vis -vis Latin America is quite arbitrary can you know swing on a dime and that that tacit support that's given to democratically elected governments can change which goes you know which we can see in the obama administration's approach to the lawfare against lula and the destruction of the pt in the 2015 2016 2017 period so i don't think that we should take for granted the idea that these governments are going to let come to power especially in a country like colombia which has been ruled by you know some of the most violent right-wing narco-terroristic uh, forces. So I remain hopeful, but also clear-eyed about the kind of conflict that lies ahead in terms of renegotiating the U.S.'s hegemonic role in the region and what it will require to build a kind of South-South uh, renewed unification effort to build um, a real patria grande effort uh, in Latin America that uh, can stand on its own on the global stage and not be so structurally dependent and not so scared of the U.S. exercising its power across the hemisphere. Hassan, your, your final thoughts on that? Um, gosh, I don't want to sound like a, an irritating academic, but I, I, I think the pink tide is a bit of a, a bit of an external construction. It's like saying, well, you know, there was a point in the 1990s when you had uh, Tony Blair in Britain, you had uh, Bill Clinton in the United States, and you had Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. And you can say these are all new labor or... or um, sort of third way type regimes but really the internal politics of blair has 
relatively little to do with what was going on in Germany. Um, you have to look at the, at the constitutional structure of these different countries to understand it. And in the same way, I think the pink tide is a, is, is a confusing term. Certainly, there's a big difference between Gabriel Boric and his, if you like, millennial socialism, which is much closer to Podemos in Spain and to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the United States than they are to the um, the the Bolivarian type uh, governments of Chavez uh, in Venezuela and, mm. um, uh, and Evo in, in Bolivia. The, the thing to bear in mind is that Chile's uh, constitutional structure is much, much more stable. Uh, you, Colombia is facing a massive, you know, has, has a long-term guerrilla civil war uh, with huge internal violence. Um, you, you get a degree of social conflictivity in Bolivia, also extremely high levels uh, of, of social conflict connected with an, in, an indigenous conflict because the indigenous are the majority of the country uh, and they, they have been excluded from power historically. Chile hasn't got either of those situations. It's a, it's a small country, a centralized state. Uh, it, def it has an indigenous conflict in the south with the Mapuche, but that is restricted to one specific area. Um, so the possibility of, of Chile carrying out progressive change uh, is much greater than these other countries where the, the, the level of state institutionalization is lower. Um, the, the challenges, I think, for Gabriel Boric will be much closer to the challenges that the US and Joe Biden are, fa are facing. When we think about the, the, the problems of, uh, of basically them trying to make, make it harder to vote, you know, this whole thing with the, with the buses. You know, the fact is that on an ordinary Sunday, the buses are all left in the depot. This time, business people said, we're not going to take them out. And the government wasn't bothered and also doesn't have the tools to, to force them to do this. So that's like a symbolic of, of the kind of problems they're facing. It's not the same uh, as Colombia, for example, where you get massacres of, uh, uh, of leftists. So the, the, the problems are much closer to, uh, to the United States in that sense. I often think of the figure of Stacey Abrams, who, who managed you know, to, to get uh, a Biden victory in Georgia. This huge increase in voter participation in a relatively stable constitutional setup, I think is reason to be optimistic for, for, for Chile to be able to do things without getting into the kind of macroeconomic instability that would make it vulnerable to US intervention. You've both been absolutely brilliant. That was such a thorough uh, overview of exactly how we got to this point, what this represents, and where things are likely or possible, where things could go from here. Um, so it's been a real tour de force from both of you, which I really, really appreciate. So thank you so, so much to both of you for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Obviously, David Adler, who's over in Los Angeles at the moment, Progressive International, do follow them. Um, Boric is himself a member of that. And Hassan Akram, who is live in Santiago, and I hope will go out partying, um, the, continue to party um, and en enjoy the atmosphere uh, in a country where the left has come to power and defeated the, the right so comprehensively. Before I let you, I'm going to sign you both off with the words of Salvador Allende, that whilst uh, I, I do that, please, if you're watching or listening, stay. It's very, very important you stay. This is a very important strike. Everyone has to support. Um, I'll let you both go now with the words of the deposed president, Salvador Allende, who was overthrown by Augusto Pinochet and a Western-backed coup in 1973.
superará otros hombres este momento gris y amargo donde la traición pretende imponer. Llegan ustedes sabiendo que mucho más temprano que tarde, de nuevo, abrirán las grandes alamedas por donde pase el hombre libre para construir una sociedad mejor. ¡Viva Chimo! ¡Viva el pueblo! ¡Vivan los trabajadores! Estas fueron mis últimas palabras. Tengo la certeza de que el sacrificio no se les pago. That was Salvador Allende, the deposed president of Chile in 1973, who's overthrown, of course, with the deaths of thousands of people. And now, of course, we remember those who died, those who had disappeared, those who were forced from Chile, and we remember, we we rejoice in the triumph of the left over Pinochet's successor. Thanks to both of those for joining us. Now, we're very, very lucky to be joined by Khalil. I'm so sorry for keeping you waiting, mate. Great to see you. It's fine. <laughs> it's a pretty so, uh, speech. I like it. It was uh, yeah, sorry. I was, for, we we like to jump around a lot on the show. Just so look, it's very important. There's a strike which is taking place. So this is the IWGB union. People do do look them up. Uh, I've been very proud to be on IWGB picket lines many a time myself. Just explain what is the strike. You're a courier, so explain what is the strike about. You're in my home city, Sheffield. What is the strike all about, first of all? Just explain that to us. It, it's about being tired of the way we're treated. We, obviously, couriers, have, since, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've kind of become the driving force around the city. People think of us as just McDonald's delivers or KFC delivers, but we delivered things like Apple products, getting technology out to people, which was great for kids who were, you know, trying to stay in education. Um, we worked on co-op and Sainsbury's and stuff, bringing groceries to people who were either, you know, um, isolating or just didn't want to go outside through fear of infection and prescriptions as well from Superdrug, which are vital for people's health. We, we sort of, we kind of got went underlooked. People didn't realize while everyone was at home staying safe, we were out delivering, we were out taking the risks. I've got, children at home and every day I had to get up and sort of say bye to the kids and wonder is this the day when I bring it back to the household is this is this the day when something goes wrong we were praised throughout the pandemic we made millions for our company who made between 2019 to 2020 I think it's 40 million plus net profit and so we were expecting when it was all over, we were expecting what anybody expects in those situations which was praise and maybe a raise maybe some kind of show that they they were grateful for what we'd done. Instead, what we got was a slow decline in our standard earnings to a point that we'd gotten used to barely making anything and working long hours, and then a reduction in our base rate of 24%, while the CEO took a pay rise of 1,000% from 210,000 in 2019 to 2.42 million in 2020. And finally, they said that you couldn't unite the couriers, that this is a, an area that couldn't be done. And we just said, no, screw you guys. We're, we're not doing it anymore. That's it. We've had enough. Change it. So this is a big, big strike and it's spread, hasn't it? And to, so just tell us just how big is the strike at the moment? Uh, we've been going in Sheffield. Uh, this is day 15 of the strike wow. in Sheffield and it's been continuous. So we've been doing uh, every McDonald's chain, five to ten, um, no just eat orders leaving. And we've had a, you know, a, a more than 80% success rate across the board. You're never going to get 100% with a strike, but we're taking 80% as a massive win. 
we've uh, we've closed down the two central McDonald's, uh, High Street and Farm Road. Archer Road has remained completely solid and closed, and for the most part, Attercliffe, Hillsborough, and um, and Handsworth have remained to a really reduced minimum, which has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, but ever since it started, it's gone gained sort of global viewing people from hong kong have been in touch and food panda decided that they'd had enough and they were doing their thing and we've had support from canada and the usa australia um italy today i think went on their strike and they sent us some, some messages of support and what have you so it's been it's been kind of insane and surreal but locally as well we've had a lot of stuff so we were in huddersfield on tuesday uh those guys wanted to take action so we went down and spoke with them uh, Paris, one of the guys, main influential guys on the strike, he went to Blackpool the day after, uh, and they've been doing absolutely incredible with their actions, shutting down pretty much every McDonald's every day. And then we went to Sunderland the day after that uh, to get those guys ball rolling and what have you. And they they're going to be holding their protest tomorrow and starting to look forward with strike action. So it's it's getting really big really quickly. Finally, what can people do to support you? There's a strike fund, isn't there, which I will, I will be sharing across social media, encouraging everybody else to do so. So just tell us, what can we do? What can people either watching or listening to this do to support you? There's there's obviously the strike fund, and that's there for, like myself, I'm an evening driver. Um, I, I run a business in the morning, but that business doesn't make profit yet. I've just opened a garage, and I have employees, employees and that, you know that sort of just maintains itself, but doesn't make any money. I continue to deliver in the evening to provide for my family. And at the moment, I haven't been doing that. I've been on the picket lines helping the guys. So there's a small amount of money there for drivers who can help out in that way. And that's what the fund helps. But it also helps to raise awareness by getting leaflets and, you know, publicity and everything else, all the things that we need to keep the strike going. But they can help by uh, jumping on Twitter at Stuart underscore delivery and give them a piece of their mind. Drivers get no sick pay. They get no, no minimum wage. They get no holiday pay. And we can be dismissed today and there's no appeal. And that's unacceptable for anybody in the workforce. So get on Twitter, let them know, get onto your local MPs and let them, you know, get them in support. We've had a lot of MPs send on, sending letters over to the Stuart CEOs and, you know, showing their support. But yeah, it's, it's pretty much anything you can do. If you can avoid McDonald's 5 to 10, which is our current striking, we have, I think, a, a festive break coming up where we're going to regroup, have some thinking time and give Stuart the opportunity to get in touch. And then on January 1st, we will be going back at it. So if people want to help out, they can avoid ordering from McDonald's uh, between those hours, and that helps to lower that amount as well. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're just some of the smaller things that people can do. And they can always join us on the picket lines. We're always happy to have many people on the ground. Um, we also, I think, one thing I've had as well is a local artist who's talking about maybe making a, a song uh, for the actual strike. So if that ends up becoming a thing, we're going we're gonna to publicise that, and then the funds will go towards the driver fund, which would be absolutely incredible. So, Khalil, I will be sharing that myself across on Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram, and I'll encourage others to do so. It's a really, really important strike. We've seen throughout the crisis, obviously, in the first phase, people clapping. The fr- frontline workers kept this country going from their windows and their doorsteps. Uh, you know, you'll keep, there's huge numbers of people self-isolating, so careers become... We, uh, when we were delivering to people's houses, we felt the support. And then they were so welcoming and so lovely that we were arriving. It was incredible. It was nice to see. Which just shows the, the huge role that you played, that, of course, claps are not enough. You need to have the rights, yeah. which were every worker in a country as wealthy as this, who work, as you say, for companies which give their chief executives huge pay rises, should expect as a bare minimum let alone anything else. It's so important. You're not just striking yourselves, you're striking for other workers because when workers like yourself um, have that show, that leadership, you encourage other le- other workers to think, 
hold on a minute, if they can fight back, if they're fighting back, why don't we do the same thing as well? And and that just, you know, IWGB, a union which really does organise often very workers who traditionally haven't been organised have won huge victories and will continue to do so because of people like yourself. So, and it's great to see that Sheffield spirit as someone who uh, was born born during the minor strike in Sheffield and was babysat by striking miners. It's where apparently I, I learned, learned a slightly colourful language. So go for it, go on. Yeah, I was born, unfortunately, in Liverpool. I was born in the area where the dock workers striked and we had the race riots. I, I lived moved to Sheffield quite a few years ago, but I, I've, I've always loved the city. I think it's incredible. Um, I have a lot of ties here from family and stuff. But, yeah, I've lived Isn't... here now. God knows how many years. I've got three Yorkshire children. Love it so oh, much. Oh, bless. Three Yorkshire kids. <laughs> Very good yeah. to hear. Well, it's good to hear that Sheffield's fighting spirit, wherever people are, whether you're born in Sheffield or not, continues uh, to be strong so it's a, it's a big honor and as i said powerhouse of the north sheffield and it always has been you guys are from the steelworks to everything it's it's an absolute powerhouse in the north and i think people are, i think people are bonding behind that because it's it's such a known city no matter where you go and seeing that they're taking action is really helping other people to say Do you know what yeah we can and we're seeing that a lot amen amen well um as i said everyone support the strike in, in the ways you said and look on my social media feeds where I'll be sharing all of those so you can actually support Khalil and others as they fight back. It's a big honour, mate. Happy Christmas. Keep fighting and um, speak soon. Happy Christmas, mate. Bye-bye. So I'll wrap up now quickly because we've had such a long show, but thanks so much for those guests uh, to Khalil there, but also uh, our brilliant guests, um, Hassan and David, um, who gave us such a thorough exposition of what happened in Chile and its wider significance. Do you support us? Oh, Blimey, hold on a minute. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, a special thanks to, uh, to Tad, uh, Campwell, Murray Lennox, Oliver Kant, uh, David Baratta, and everyone who supported us during the show. Do support us on patreon.com for slash Joe's84. We've got lots of very big documentaries to come, and I'm going to do a shout out on Patreon to ask what is the next documentary we should do. Every documentary idea we've done. Uh, has been because people on Patreon have suggested them to us and that's why we've done them. We haven't come up with a single idea ourselves. That was always the idea, though. Um, we uh, will... I don't know if we're on Boxing Day live because it's Boxing Day and I don't think anyone's going to watch us or want to listen to us talk about politics on Boxing Day, but we'll have a live show very soon before the end of the year, probably talking about lockdown restrictions. Uh, obviously, a lot's happened on that front. Uh, do listen to the podcast, obviously. If you're watching, press like on YouTube. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, give us a review and support us that way. And today, what we're going to do after that brilliant show and those brilliant guests is we're going to sign off to the brilliant uh, song of the a song of Victor Jara, the Chilean folk singer who was murdered by Pinochet's goons after the overthrow of Salvador Allende's government back in 1973. So I will sign off today. You can listen to the beautiful melodic voice of the martyred Victor Jara. A toda la humanidad, ningún cañón borrará el surco de tu arrozal, el derecho de vivir. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Owen Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.